0: This is Diet of Cabbage. These are extended pieces uh, from the uh, Diet of Brussels uh, podcast, which you can find at www.adietofbrussels.com. Now, in these extended pieces, we want to think about some of the, the big questions, the big picture stuff. Uh, on the on the regular podcasts, we've been looking at little precise things and just thinking about them in uh, kind of... Uh, much narrower terms and you know that's given you a whole series of five minute uh, long pieces but we also want to try and develop this a bit more so we want to bring in different voices so we've had the interviews that you've seen over previous months but here i want to try something uh, a bit different which is uh, in this short series really think about the the big picture so in the previous uh, diet of cabbage uh, piece Uh, I've talked about the EU, where it's come from, how it works, where it might be going. Um, Here I want to talk about the UK and the EU uh, and the dimensions of that. And then in the third piece I'm going to talk about the referendum and what we might uh, reflect upon at this point. And if you're wondering about the name, uh, a diet of cabbage uh, uh, reflects the fact that a cabbage is a large Brussels sprout. The UK's relationship with the EU is one that, depending on how you define your historical terms, uh, has always been a problem uh, in many ways. That uh, The kind of standard model of thinking about this is of the UK as an awkward partner. Now, this was the, the name of a very well-respected uh, textbook, uh, academic book, uh, that came out in the 1990s. And really, I think, you know, that's the kind of the model that we work to, that it's easy to think of the points of conflict, the tensions between the UK and European counterparts and the European level uh, over the decades, whether that's the unwillingness of the British to be involved uh, in the original formation of the EEC back in the 1950s, whether it's about the difficulties of securing membership through the 1960s, Whether it's about uh, Margaret Thatcher trying to fight for our money and getting it back or about her deep uh, dissatisfaction with the efforts to move towards a single currency in the 1980s. Whether it's about BSC and mad cow disease or about the uh, general uh, discomfort and unhappiness uh, of the 1990s that led through into the Euroscepticism of the 21st century and ultimately, you know, through to this uh, current referendum that uh, no other country has uh, come to this stage that after uh, more than four decades of membership saying, well, actually, we're not sure whether we want to be a member. In all of these ways, the EU is exceptional. It is awkward. But I want to really offer a little bit of relativization here. That uh, it's easy to, to assume that uh, things have been bad, uh, that they will continue to be bad, and that uh, the UK is uh, a, a case apart. Let's think about uh, another country that uh, has also been awkward, just to pick one. This is a country that stopped... Uh, European integration for a full six months because it didn't like what was happening. And when I say stopped, I mean, literally, it stopped everything. That it meant uh, it was the only time that uh, a country has uh, managed to achieve that. Uh, John Major tried something similar back in the 1990s to not that much effect. He was basically uh, ignored. But this other country uh, stopped the system for six months. It secured a very big concession, which basically shaped the next 20 years of integration. It has uh, embedded its uh, preferences deep in the structures of the treaties, which means that in areas like agriculture, uh, overseas uh, territories, all of these things, nuclear power, uh, it The system works very much for this country's benefit. And, uh, you know, it's uh, a country which has uh, found it difficult to work within uh, the rules that have been provided to it. Uh, It finds that uh, its uh, willingness to uh, actually act uh, and and follow the decisions that are taken at European level as uh, much more constrained than you might imagine. Now, that country's France. If I say that, we don't immediately think of the French as awkward partners. And part of the reason for that, a large part of the reason for that, I'd argue, is that French politicians and the French elite have been uh, very clear about how France relates to uh, the European level that in France in the 1950s there was a clear decision that actually the best way to secure French interests was to lead from the front uh, in the European integration process. Certainly that was true after the the Suez crisis. That uh, here was an opportunity to take leadership, to shape the system that uh, the Germans, the West Germans, were not in a position uh, to... uh, assume any kind of leadership role so they would uh, defer to the French and if the British wanted to go and do something else then well that was up to the British Uh, so the French really made the most of that time but you know they were very difficult that Charles de Gaulle was as awkward if not more awkward than Margaret Thatcher ever was Uh, and this uh, six month suspension of activity in what's called the empty chair crisis back in the 1960s uh, was, in the end, very uh, useful for France. But uh, the difference here is that uh, the uh, the rhetorical presentation of European integration is very different. That if you listen to French politicians, they talk the language of Europe. They talk about the desire to promote European integration, the need to work together. Now, uh, That doesn't necessarily mean that the practice is the same Uh, certainly if we witness the way in which uh, successive french governments have struggled with economic reform uh, since they've been within the euro partly explains why the french economy is not uh, all that great at the moment by contrast british governments haven't had that same uh, conversion of rhetoric Instead, the language of British politics remains resolutely national. That uh, there is uh, always uh, an assumption that uh, what is said is meant. And that uh, certainly one of the frustrations, uh, if you talk to British officials, is that uh, whilst they uh, will only sign up to things that they uh, actually think they can uh, make work, uh, in uh, European uh, legislative circles. Uh, counterparts from other countries often will say, well, it doesn't really matter, we'll work it out in the wash, um, and so the language of the uh, the legal text is less important. So there's a, a kind of a clash of cultures kind of argument. And it's not just the British who uh, find this, you see it in uh, other North European countries too. But the UK has always struggled a bit with European integration. It's not ever been entirely clear why the UK uh, needs or should be uh, involved in this system. So this leads, I think, nicely onto a second big question, which is, what? why is it involved? In the 1950s... Uh, it became clear that other West European countries were going to not wait for the British. Uh, They had been uh, somewhat uh, unhelpful, uh, the British that is, in uh, pursuing projects for integration. And if you want some more information about that, you can listen to the previous episode of uh, A Diet of Cabbage. Um, And in essence, what happened was that... uh, Uh, The French, with the agreement of other states, said, "Okay, well, we'll just not worry about the British and we'll press on. The difficulty was that once the French and the Germans uh, had found uh, an agreement that worked and was pushing ahead, as happened uh, uh, in the 1950s, uh, that really left the UK in a a very difficult political and economic position, that uh, the core of the West European economy uh was doing something which uh excluded the UK which realistically the UK needed to be part of so uh, as much as the the UK tried to respond to the setting up of the european economic uh, community by setting up its own association the european free trade association after uh just a year after Uh, a year or two after uh, the EEC was set up. Uh, Very quickly, the British were lodging membership applications to join uh, their uh, competitors. Now, uh, from a French perspective, that caused uh, a number of anxieties, not least uh, that this would uh, cause... uh, the French to no longer be the undisputed leaders of their community and that it was better to hold the British at arm's length for the time being until uh, French interests could be pursued and embedded more satisfactorily. In essence, that's what happened, that whatever the local politics of it, that there was uh, a sense that uh, the British needed to be kept out either permanently or until they would basically be forced to uh, accept what was given to them. But the persistence with which successive British governments on both the right and the left pushed for EEC membership, I think gives uh, a suggestion of the way in which the world was seen. That the shrinking of British uh, global ambitions, particularly after Suez in 1956, but also, I think, with the, the changing nature of the global economy, Uh, The Cold War, where the UK was a helpful ally of the US, but by no means a a pivot uh, in security terms. All of these things, I think, highlighted that uh, there needed to be close relations with the rest of Western Europe. Now, uh, the consequence of that was that the point at which uh, the UK finally does get to join in 1973 is, if you like, about as bad a bit of uh, timing as you might imagine. The original member states are the formation of the EEC back in the late 50s came at the point where the long boom of the post-war was starting, that... Uh, membership was associated with a long period of strong economic growth, of burgeoning uh, confidence and success in the world. By contrast, uh, almost as soon as the UK had joined, along with Ireland and uh, Denmark back in 73, uh, that long period of growth came to an end. uh, With the oil crises uh, and eurosclerosis, to use the phrase of the time, that everyone everything seemed to look really very unhelpful, and that the UK, perhaps understandably, uh, had formed, you know, the population formed something of a negative association that in joining, uh, this somehow had caused the oil crisis, even though clearly it hadn't, that that was uh, purely coincidental. However, I think it really highlights the difficulty that the British have found, that they entered a system that uh, wasn't designed with their interests uh, at heart. And before we judge that too uh, harshly, it's worth bearing in mind that that's something which has happened with every single uh, enlargement uh, since, that uh, the British have been perfectly happy to uh, pursue their own interests Uh, before new member states have come in, uh, whether that's uh, other West European countries in the uh, 80s and 90s or uh, Central Eastern Europe in the 2000s. So it's a kind of a normal function of the system that if you're on the inside and you're going to let some new people in, you you want to make sure that you don't suffer uh, from that. The real, uh, I think, trajectory of uh, British membership since seventy three has been one of uh, firefighting rather than of strategic direction. That There isn't a uh, big plan for British membership. Now, um, if you have listened to the other podcast uh, or the previous episode of A Diet of Cabbage, when I talked about the EU, I also talked about how the EU doesn't have a big plan. It's sort of... Uh, develops as things come up and largely actually that's how the british have managed their european relations that the perspective is resolutely tactical rather than strategic so uh, a situation arises there is a local solution and then we move on to the next problem that comes so uh, almost immediately we see this happening back in the 1970s when we have uh, the uh, fall of the Heath government, uh, just a year after joining, um, and a commitment by a Labour government to engage in a renegotiation of the terms of membership. Now, that takes place with some fairly minor changes. Uh, We have a referendum, 1975, and uh, we kind of trundle along but already it's you know it's clear that there's a, a problem around budgetary contributions and when uh the conservatives come back to power in 79 uh the new prime minister margaret thatcher says well okay we're going to sort out this problem and she spends a good 5 years uh pressing very hard on uh getting uh her money back uh, to use uh, the phrase now that uh, push by thatcher Took a lot of efforts, a lot of time, it was ultimately a very uh, successful uh, negotiation, certainly from the British perspective, in terms of reducing the difference between what the UK pays in and what it got back. But it wasn't associated with a bigger picture development. Now, at uh, on one level, that meant that uh, Thatcher could be very much more pragmatic uh, about the EU than. Uh, uh, I think we tend to give a credit for nowadays. Um, at The point that she was wrapping up the the budget renegotiations in '74, she was also uh, happily pushing uh, forward plans for single market integration, which ultimately turned into the Single European Act of '86 uh, uh, and the uh, uh, 1992 project, which came with that. Um, where I think things became more complicated was that uh, Thatcher probably underappreciated the uh, way in which that decisions could take on a life of their own and the the way in which that the, this push for single market integration could be uh, used as a, a basis for which to discuss having a single currency. And that really led us into Maastricht and to uh, late stage uh Thatcherite opposition to uh the system uh that uh, you know really characterized her, her final years in power. But that muddling through is something which is not just about Thatcher, uh it's also true of all subsequent leaders. You know, if you think about John Major, you know, working his way through uh Mastery Treaty, trying to uh be well, flexible about things, accommodating, dealing with his small majority, then kind of throwing uh, his uh, weight behind uh, the mad cow uh, crisis and trying to force uh, the EU to be more uh, accommodating in what it did. Likewise, uh, Tony Blair, I, I think you know Blair is possibly a, a slight exception here that he did have some idea about putting... Britain at the heart of Europe, which was never really explained as a term, but that largely came down to pushing on defence policy, um, not least as a way of compensating for his unwillingness to engage in the single currency. So there's never really been a a kind of a clear plan and direction, and I think that's still true today um, uh, when we look at uh, the Cameron government and the way that that has developed, that Uh, There's never been a big plan. And we'll talk a bit about the the referendum uh, in the next episode. Now, the difficulty here is that in the absence of a strategic uh, direction, in the absence of a, a, a clear set of objectives beyond let's try and make this as little of a problem as possible, is that it's made it that much harder in the British system to... Uh, explain what is being done and why things are being done. And it partly explains why the government's got uh, the situation that it does now, that uh, the case for European integration doesn't get made, or hasn't been made very often by any government. Now, uh, does that matter? Mm, to a certain extent, uh, no, it doesn't matter. If governments choose not to explain, then that's... Uh, Their problem. But in uh, the sense of uh, trying to then have a public debate about what uh, might be going on, it clearly is an issue. And certainly, if we look at uh, the evidence that we have uh, about uh, public knowledge of European integration, we can see that the UK sits resolutely at the bottom end of that uh, particular league table, that uh, levels of understanding are very low. Now that makes it easier then for uh, other people to try and fill the void. One of the great distinctive features of uh, British European politics is that this is the country that gave uh, the world uh, Euroscepticism, both as a word and as a concept and as a set of activities. The UK has always had uh, organisations of various kinds Uh, and more recently parties too, that have been opposed to European integration. Now, um, that's also true of every other country uh, in the EU, Um, but the extent, the scale of that Euroscepticism is uh, that much different here in the UK. Now, that's meant that there has been uh, a large... Uh, community of people who have devoted a lot of time and efforts to uh, challenging uh, integration and the UK's role in that system. And you can certainly see that when you look at this current referendum, that uh, the kinds of arguments that uh, Eurosceptics have been making, that those who want to leave the EU, that they make, uh, are arguments which are much rehearsed, well-practised, that have been developed for a good 20 years or more now uh, again that's not a problem intrinsically it's merely an observation that uh, certainly uh, if we look at uh, the way that uh, things work in the UK you can actually make an argument that there's probably more debate about European integration in the UK than there is in most other member states that's not necessarily to say that that debate is well-informed or that uh, everything that's said is correct. However, I think it does uh, give a sense of the way in which uh, the British debate is not just about where we are now, but about where we've come from uh, in the past. Now, uh, clearly the temptation is to think, Okay, let's not just talk about the the historical thing about why we're there. Where are we right now? So what does the UK's situation look like these days? I think the the starting point that I'd want to stress is that the UK is an important member state. It's one of the largest by population. It has a, a set of resources that very few other member states uh, possess. So, you know, if we think about uh, the size of its economy, the importance of its financial services sector to the European economy clearly dominates uh, in those areas. Likewise, externally, its uh, permanent seats on the UN Security Council, its possession of nuclear weapons, its... uh, breadth and depth of engagement in international institutions and uh, around the world. All of those things are really, I think, uh, quite a, a unique combination that uh, uh, the UK brings. So the UK matters in that sense. And I think one of the things that's interesting is that uh, other European uh, member states have, uh, I think, pretty uniformly supported the continuing membership of the UK. That if the UK uh, wasn't a member of the EU, that then uh, the EU would find itself uh, a rather different creature. That uh, there'd be more pressure for uh, interventionist regulation, uh, kind of uh, a model that. Uh, the UK has been uh, quite successful in uh, pushing against. And I think that's the second key point, is that uh, the UK is actually probably more successful in shaping the EU than is often appreciated. Let's take uh, Margaret Thatcher again, because she's a a useful uh, touchstone for for all of this. Back in uh, uh, 1988, rather, Margaret Thatcher went to Bruges, uh, where she gave a speech to the College of Europe, um, which at the time was uh, notorious uh, amongst European circles. It was the first time that uh, a serving head of uh, an EU member state government had spoken in such critical terms about what was going on. Now, Thatcher identified a number of principles that she thought should be governing uh, european cooperation European integration now these included things such as uh, not having uh, more regulation at a European level that you know she talked about rolling back the state uh, in uh, the u k and not wanting to see it unrolled again uh, by uh, the European community, as it was at the time. She also talked about the need for a security cooperation that was led by NATO rather than any kind of uh, autonomous European capacity. She talked about the centrality of uh, enlargement to the east, At the time, all of these things were seen as very uh, heterodox kind of positions, that this isn't A, how you did things, and B, these weren't the kinds of things that you uh, uh, would seek to achieve. And yet, if you look at the EU today, it actually looks a lot like Thatcher's model, that we have uh, a security system that is firmly grounded in NATO uh, and uh, in the Atlantic uh, security community. We have, clearly, enlargements to Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, And we have a system that actually is a lot more liberal and uh, liberalising than it looked like it might be in the 1980s. Now, uh, if you'd like, this is a reflection of two things. At one level, it's about success of the way the UK has pursued its agenda in the European Union. Um, In contrast to some other countries, the UK has always taken a very flexible position on who it works with. It's built coalitions with uh, partners on specific issues, and it's happy to move around and talk to different people on different things. So, to just give a couple of examples, it works very closely with the French on security policy, uh, because the French are the other big military powers in the EU. But it then works with Sweden on welfare uh, questions and uh, development of social policy. It works with the Germans on trade liberalisation. Uh, it works with uh, many countries on uh, enlargement. Now, uh, that's uh, a model which uh, is adaptable, which is flexible, which has served the UK better than, say, the French model, where uh, many of the horses were hitched to the wagon of uh, Franco-German cooperation. And since the end of the Cold War, that has been more and more problematic as it became clear that uh, France and Germany were no longer equals, uh, uh, but that Germany was in a, a predominant position at the same time, that kind of leaves uh, a bit of an issue that uh, is still very much uh, on-the-hoof, uh, ad hoc kind of uh, way of doing things. And this really then comes to the second level, that it's not just about the success of British negotiators and British politicians and promoting British ideas. It's also that uh, things that we talk about as uh, British national interest or British priorities are not actually uh, for all people in the UK. And if you think about the way national politics works, we don't say that uh, a political party is doing things in the best interests of Britain, or well, they might say that. You say, no, you've got uh, an agenda, you're to pursue your agenda. And some people support you, and most people don't support you. And it's the same too uh, at the European level, that often in the UK we talk about... Uh, National interests as if that's the only way of doing things. Whereas actually there's a recognition that uh, interests tend to cut cut across boundaries. And that where people find common cause uh, uh, is not defined by geography, but rather by other factors, whether that's uh, economic position or ideology, things like that. That's... It's the reason why MEPs uh, in the European Parliament sit in uh, ideologically uh, consistent groups rather than uh, national groups, because I actually find they've got more in common with, say, if you're a socialist in the UK, you've got more in common with a socialist in Germany than you do with uh, a conservative in the UK. So the UK's position is one which uh, maybe looks different and apart from other european countries but actually has a lot of overlap and this is reflected in uh the uh, the very high rates of uh consensual voting or being on the the side of a majority not just for the uk but for all member states now uh this is something which has come up in recent months uh that uh Research by uh, Simon Hicks at the London School of Economics had shown that uh, the UK was the most outvoted uh, member state uh, in uh, the last uh, European Parliament, so through the five years to 2014. However, you know, while that's true, um, the UK was still on the uh, other side of uh, that line, so i.e. in the majority, 85% of the time so for uh the vast majority of decisions the u k and all other member states find themselves in agreement now, you could argue that that's because uh the uh system uh, evens out differences that you could say, well, actually you know everyone ends up it's all uh mates together and uh, everyone secretly agrees and there's a a kind of a project behind this. But as I've tried to argue in my other podcasts, there isn't a, a big plan here. Rather, what tends to happen is that the EU wants to make decisions that actually are viable. And that there's no point making a decision if, in practice, it's unenforceable. So as much as there is majority voting, as much as there is uh, a pressure to not be moving at the speed of the slowest ship, um, typically in European uh, decision-making, whether that's within the council, where member states are represented, or in the European Parliament, if there's an understanding that countries have a particular problem with a piece of legislation, Uh, that then there will be efforts to try and uh, accommodate that that provide a a necessary degree of flexibility in what happens. Now, uh, the consequence of that is that then actually most things are acceptable to most countries. Put differently, um, the UK, like all other member states, has made the, the calculation that this is a system where benefits uh, outweigh costs. and the, the UK has been willing to accept the extension of majority voting over time because it feels that the, uh, whilst it means that sometimes it will be on the wrong side of a vote, it actually means there will be many more areas where it is able to uh, be on the right side of the vote and it will be able to sidestep uh, opposition from other countries. Now, uh, whether that uh, calculation or evaluation is uh, correct or not is uh, a moot point. But certainly, it's uh, something that consistent governments, uh, consistently governments, have uh, held as a line. Now, to take uh, one kind of review of that as a, as a marker of it, the previous governments, the, uh, the coalition uh, with uh, David Cameron. Um, commissioned a review of competences, um, which was basically an attempt to get a sense of quite what uh, impact the EU had on uh, the British political system in different policy areas. And con- there was a whole series of reports where different ministries talked about what was happening, uh, where they saw problems. And actually, the, the results of that, when they came out a few years ago, was uh, were that, uh, actually, the, the, the balance of the system was broadly the right one. That, yes, there might be some local niggles, but actually uh, the thrust of membership was one which was appropriate. Now, uh, you might raise a, a, an eyebrow at this, but I, I think it also reflects the way in which uh, the EU operates. It doesn't operate in a, a vacuum. And as I talked in one of my very first uh, Diet of Brussels podcasts, which you can listen to at com, I talked about how uh, the system does work. That uh, the, as much as it is the European Commission, based in Brussels, that uh, is the only one that can propose legislation, it doesn't do that uh, kind of... Uh, in a locked room with no reference to the outside world it spends a lot of its time engaged in discussions with member states with other institutions with civil society with lobbyists uh, and the rest about what might be uh, a useful thing to do and an appropriate thing to do and a viable thing to do because again it doesn't want to propose legislation that's going to get knocked back or find is uh, not a, a workable proposition so British civil servants are involved in every stage of this process. That They're involved in that consultation, that discussion. They are involved in advising government ministers about uh, what to do with the piece of legislation and how it might work in a British context. And typically uh, British civil servants are responsible for the implementation of that legislation uh, once it has been passed. So Rather than think, seeing the European level as a, a disconnected part of uh, uh, or disconnected from what happens uh, within the UK, I think we need to recognise that actually uh, Brussels is uh, an integrated section of that. Uh, the way that things work. Now, uh, looking at that, if we think about this uh, question of Britain and the EU... I think uh, part of the difficulty has been that uh, the absence of a clear government or state uh, direction or policy on uh, European integration has meant that the levels of understanding have been relatively low, and I've talked about that already. That's one of the complicating factors for the current government in this referendum, which is that people don't know or don't understand how the system works and that there's not always a great willingness to find out more. You uh, clearly are an exception, and that you've uh, listened this far and this long, I think, is uh, a mark of your uh, intelligence and wisdom. So where does this leave us with Britain the EU? Well, I think a, a number of points are worth making. First of all, yes, the UK has had a difficult relationship with uh, its European uh, counterparts, But I think that shouldn't blind us to the fact that other member states have also had difficult uh, relations. Second point that I think I'd want to make is that the UK has already had an extensive number of adjustments made to reflect its situation. Most obviously it is not part of the single currency. It's also not part of the Schengen area which allows for free movement. It has exemptions in various areas of uh, cooperation on uh, police and justice and home affairs. It has the budget rebate uh, that Margaret Thatcher uh, negotiates, albeit a bit modified uh, for various reasons. And generally, it's uh, done really quite well in promoting... Uh, its agendas in shaping the Union to look uh, more friendly and accommodating to uh, what I hesitate to call British interests, but interests that uh, the British governments of different uh, political complexions have talked about down the years. However, all of this comes uh in the context of a uh, public that is ambivalent, at best, I think, about the EU, uh, that uh, has low levels of knowledge, that has uh, a certain unwillingness to uh, credit uh, people uh, with uh, the more positive interpretations that might be possible uh, about that relationship. Now, that void, as I suggested, has been filled in large part by more critical voices, whether that's the many Eurosceptic groups that have existed down the years, uh, whether it's uh, newspapers and other media that have been uh, less than enthusiastic, if I could put it that way, uh, about uh, the value of European integration and its effect. All in all, then, are... Uh, I think the the underlying problem remains one of direction. And if we think about the referendum as a point where uh, direction might be provided, we might say, well, yes, that's a distinct possibility. But we also need to recognise that the referendum in of itself doesn't provide a solution. All it does is it it provides a decision about something, but it doesn't say quite what should happen thereafter. and It it can't do. As we remember from the Scottish referendum, uh, just having a decision doesn't actually uh, solve the issue in any way. It merely opens a new phase. So my hope with these podcasts has always been that that might help contribute towards a public debate. But it's something which requires uh, popular engagement, It requires politicians to uh, participate too, to talk about what we might do and how it might look. Now, uh, my level of confidence about how likely that is, is neither here nor there. But uh, uh, I think the one thing that's uh, clear is that we are unlikely to reach a resolution that uh, will put this issue to rest in a hurry. Now, we can be uh, unhappy about that. Uh, or we can say, well, fine, that's just the way things are. Uh, Things are rarely settled in public policy in any area, and so we should just accept that this is uh, the nature of things, and we should keep on having the discussion as we go along. I hope that this kind of overview of uh, the UK and the EU uh, and their relations has been useful. If you want to hear more uh, about specific questions, please go to our website, com for the uh, Diet of Brussels uh, podcast, the short ones. Or you can listen to the third episode in this Diet of Cabbage uh, series where I'll be talking about the referendum itself. Thanks very much.